This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. when I say you can greet each other, I gotta, I gotta shut it down every week, you know what I mean? You guys, you guys can greet somebody, you know, you do a good job at that. Thank you very much. I, I just want to uh, welcome all of you. If you're new with us, make sure that you get one of these visitor cards filled out and turned in at the end. We'll give you more information on that. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we're preaching through the book of Titus. So we've got some people who want to get a Bible in your hands. Uh, and if you don't have a Bible or a Bible app, then if you could just raise your hand real quick and we'll get one in your hands. If you don't own a Bible, feel free to keep this. This is our gift to you. If you just forgot to bring your Bible today, then um, make sure to get one in your hands. We love the Word of God. Can we say amen to that? And we're going to be preaching from that. So make sure to uh, got, grab a hold of one of those and turn to the book of Titus, the book of Titus. Um, a couple of quick announcements as you're turning there, and then uh, we're going to dive right into this very important text. And one would be, um, I wanted to announce that this Saturday night at 6 p.m., Redemption Student Union, or our youth group, or RSU, whatever you want to call them, is doing a fundraiser, talent show, dinner. Yeah, go ahead and give them a hand. They're going to do that. I was here yesterday, saw them practicing. We got some talented kids. They got some songs ready and dances and all that kind of stuff. So make sure to come out on Saturday night. Bring your money. That's all I'm going to say. Just bring your money and bring a lot of it because we need to raise the money for them to go to camp. You could buy a meal. There's art that they're auctioning off and you can just give donations, whatever it is. But all the money is going to go help uh, kids go to youth camp this summer. So please uh, invite friends, just come out and enjoy the time. It's really a fun night. And if you have questions, talk to my wife, Dana. She'll be able to do that or any of the youth staff. Um, also, we have Encounter coming up on May 14th. If you haven't gone through a gospel encounter, make sure to talk to Pastor Wayne, who's standing up in the back, has got his hand in the air. He's waving it like he doesn't care. Yeah, that's, that's my man back there. Make sure you talk to him. We'll also have online signups. It's $40 for the whole day. And that is the day for us to just focus in on the gospel, to respond to the gospel. And we've had so many people whose lives have been changed from this, uh, this one event. And so hopefully you can be coming. This will be, you know, our one for this year. And hopefully you can make it out to that. Also, I just wanted to say again, um, I, I know that some of you saw it online and responded. And uh, I just wanted to, to let you know last week, uh, the way I handled the text, um, specifically one part, uh, I felt convicted when I got done because I, I felt like, man, I, I said some things that I, I overstated in sarcasm. And, and I want you guys to know that the Holy Spirit convicted me on that. I talked to the elders and we just felt like I did need to repent for for that. And uh, I just want you to know that I am really sorry if I offended anybody for the way that I handled that text. I know there are people who struggle with uh, that that doctrine specifically, and I want to be sensitive to that. But I do thank you guys for your response and, and, and the love and the support for that. And I just want you all to know I love you and I'm constantly striving to communicate the gospel uh, in, in a right way. And if I stand in the way of that, I don't want to do that. Um, so I love you guys. Um, oh, yes. Yay. <laughs> I like it. When we repent here, we clap for you, you know. 
that's, a, that's so rare, man. A, no, just kidding. Uh, I, I want to make a, 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 a statement before we jump into this text together. I, I think what, what I want to do with this is, is I know that there can be an opportunity for me to preach this text. And as, as faithful as I want to be to it, I also want to pastor us through this and set a little bit of context. That in order to do that, I, I want to make a couple of statements. One would be this. I honestly hate the way that men have treated women throughout history through and even in our modern day, even in today's time. I, I don't think you have to hide the fact or even have much discernment that women and children have been abused, have been taken advantage of, have been mistreated, and this stuff that is happening to, to specifically, as I would say, the, the women in our, in our culture and in our world, in the, the marginalizing and the the way that they've been treated in different ways, sexualized and, and uh, you know, and, and dehumanized in so many ways. It is wrong and it is sinful. And, and I'll say this. You don't have to convince me that men shouldn't take the blame for this. There is much that men should repent for and be broken for in the way that it has been treated. I want to say that because it doesn't surprise me the way women have fought back against the injustices that have been done against them. I want to say that because I want to make it clear that you can only mistreat a weaker community, a minority group, whatever you want to call that group, a marginalized group, you can only mistreat and abuse for so long before something rises up and say, we're going to fight back. And that's what has taken place in so many communities, but specifically you've seen it happening um, in, in many ways with women who are saying, no, we're going to fight for our rights and we're going to fight for equality. And what it ends up becoming is, in so many ways, a fighting back against the misuse of power and trying to, without even saying it this way, trying to get power back. But what ends up happening is when these kinds of power struggles take place, what happens is we don't see the reverse problem of what happens when men and women are fighting for power. We don't see what happens to a society and to families when men and women are fighting for power and there is a real issue. And this issue that we are seeing in our world is the byproduct of the power struggle between men and women. And that is fatherlessness that is in our nation. You would have to turn a blind eye to the reality of the problem with fatherlessness in our nation in order for you to miss the 
the byproduct of this. And I'm going to give you some stats from different, um, from different uh, 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 government agencies or bureaus. First would be the U.S. Department of Health and Census. Here's what they say. 63% of youth suicides are from fatherless homes. That's five times the average. 90% of all homelessness and runaway children are from fatherless homes. That's 32 times the average. 85% of all children who show behavior disorders come from fatherless homes. That's 20 times the average. That's from the Center of Disease Control. 80% of rapists and those who are diagnosed with anger problems come from fatherless homes. That's 14 times the average. That's from the Justice and Behavior Bureau. 71% of all high school dropouts come from fatherless homes. That's nine times the average. That's from the National Principal Association report. No matter how you feel about the role of men and women, no matter how you feel about uh, these doctrines maybe that you never heard of or, or, or the things that have happened, and, you know, well, should men or women be in, in, in ministry? What's the role? What about equality? No matter how you feel about these issues and no matter where you land on this fight, and I'm not even saying that it's women's fault. That's not what I'm saying. I said earlier, this is and should fall squarely on the, role, the, the shoulders of men. And I know in making statements like this, I also need to be sensitive to the fact and am sensitive to the fact that there are many single mothers in this room who are doing what they can to, to step in the gap of a father who's abandoned their family. Or there is abusive fathers who are in the family but still doing horrible, horrific things to their family and children. And I want to be sensitive to that. But here's what I want you to hear. I'm not assigning blame to women. I'm not trying to give a, an out for men. And I'm not trying to even make a statement, although I do have opinion on these issues. What I want you to hear is this. In the fight between men and women for power, children are dying. And you are abandoning a generation who need fathers. And no matter what you think about men, and no matter what you think about what they have done, and no matter what has been experienced, because all of that is real, and men need to bear the weight of this squarely upon their shoulders. You abandoning the home, and you leaving your positions in them which you have been called to, to be in, and you not being the kind of man that you have been called to be, has left the families, have left our communities, have left people in a broken state. And I'm going to tell you, men and fathers have their excuses also. They will, like Adam, pass the buck and say, man, you know, 
Women want the power, let's just give it to them. We'll just sit by, play video games, and chill. Women want all that, let them do the work, we'll just sit around. And I ain't going to be a chauvinist, that's fine, I ain't going to say nothing, I'll just, I'll just back away. They've become passive and quiet. And no matter where you land, and no matter who you blame, or no matter where you fall, this is an issue that you can't ignore, and it's the byproduct of fighting for power between men and women. Homes have been shattered. I hope you'll see why I said this as we study this Titus 1, 5 through 9. Who is Titus again? Titus is a beloved son of Paul, the apostle, who's said in verse Four of chapter 1, he said to him, listen, you're my beloved son. You're a true son in the faith. This is his son. So here you see a father or a spiritual fa- father identifying that this is his son in the ministry. They traveled together. They spent time together. And in this opening in chapter 1, he is addressing his son Titus. He says to Titus, and what he's wanting to do is in this uh, a, a greeting that we talked about last week, and these, w- these will be up on the screen again. He wants to affirm his son that we are servants of the Lord. He wants them to see, listen, that God is in ultimate authority and we are his servants. It's not about us. We are servants of the Lord. And this is what the father is saying to his son. He's also saying we are secure in the Lord. Listen, he's got us. He's made promises. This is in control. We are secure. You're not in control. He's in control. You can rest in the security of the Lord the other thing he said is son we're in this together we're in this together we share in common faith I got you we're in this together what a beautiful thing for a spiritual father to say to his son who is in the midst of trying to do what his father has left him to do in this in this town what he says to him is look you're a servant don't make it about you you are secure don't think that it's out of control God's got this he's made promises and look I'm in this with you we're in this together here's a father speaking to his son and then the next thing he does is jump into the verses we are going to study today let's stand together as we read God's word as we're standing Let's remember this is God's word. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of a debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I started with fatherlessness. And the same way I started there, I want to start this conversation 
with this. I want to stand in this pulpit and apologize to you for how many horrible pastors there are out there. Y'all don't have to be that discerning to look at the state of what we would call ministry across the board and seeing uh, men and then even women, but, but specifically men who are in that position of leadership who are abusing it. And there's reasons why. One is, I think we need to apologize and take responsibility for the celebrity culture that is out there. We have less pastors and more celebrities than we ever have had. We pick our favorite preacher who is a celebrity. And if you could just be really honest, just because you listen to his podcast, watch him on TV, read his books, he's not your pastor. He don't know your name. You can't call him. You you know what I mean? When you do, you're leaving a message. And his secretary might send you an email, right? He's not your pastor. He's a celebrity. And not only have you fed into that celebrity culture, but there are pastors who are pursuing celebrity over being pastors. They've used the platform to promote themselves and to get themselves in a position of popularity and fame. The celebrity culture also perpetuates another problem, which we're going to... This one is hard for me to understand. I mean, this has become so acceptable that many of us believe that our pastors should be rich. Because they told us that over and over again. I don't have a problem with pastors having money. That's not the issue. This issue, to me, goes far deeper than a pastor having some money. It has to do with the obvious greed. And manipulation of those who are poor and marginalized to give out of their sacrifice so that they could drive a Bentley or live in a mansion and then tell you that that's righteousness and godliness. Greed is all over the place when we talk about the other thing we can see and have experienced, maybe not on a grand scale, but maybe in smaller churches or or even in, in larger churches. We've seen pastors who have used their position to abuse and control people. They force people to do what they want them to do. They're forcing people to live the life they say that they need to live. They're laying burdens and rules, manipulating and controlling and abusing. There are so many people who have attended churches who have left abused, shattered, broken. Add on top of that, The obvious lust that has become acceptable amongst our clergy. 
it seems like you can't even look anywhere without seeing the next guy that you thought would never stumble who divorces or cheats or leaves or walks away, has three extra side chicks, something going on. Like it doesn't even, and then all of a sudden, everybody, because that's their celebrity, loves to make the forgiveness card. Like, let's just forgive him. I mean, he's just human. Let's let him keep preaching. Like nobody cares. Filled with lust. Power hungry. Lustful. Greedy. Pursuing popularity. And then we wonder why these same guys are perpetuating the problem by preaching false things. If they're going to elevate these things, they're going to preach the same message. Look, you all want to be rich? Yes! Look, you all want to be popular? Yes! You want to be abusive and controlling? Well, nah, let's not word it that way, but yes! You want to be forgiven as you go around and sleep around all you want? Yeah! So the gospel message gets perverted so that the same perpetual issue, and, and I'll, I'll just, let's just make it clear. We are the only ones who thinks it's cool. Everybody else is laughing at us like, y'all are crazy, right? Our witness has been lost in the world because of the craziness of, of this perpetual problem. Now, if I am to look at these issues and see them, first I could say, and I, I do say, I am so sorry, not only for those who have done those things to you, but if in any way, at any time, this is something that I have perpetuated or something that has been a problem that I have caused, I am sorry. I, I repent of such. And I can see why, with this as the state of our spiritual leaders, I can see why people would respond. And here's what we are hearing people respond to this kind of issue. You are hearing either people bite into it, hook, line, and sinker, or there's a lot of people who are saying, look, we don't need pastors. All these dudes are jokes. We can raise ourselves. We don't need any spiritual leadership. We don't need anybody. We're all just brothers and sisters. We don't need pastors. We don't need leaders. We don't need fathers, if you will. And there is an inerrant distrust of everyone who calls themselves a pastor or everyone who is a leader. So what we've done is we have abandoned the church, the family of God. We've abandoned all of all that. And we have a bunch of people who are living out their Christian faith by themselves. No leadership. No family. They're by themselves. And you have a whole community of people who are saying this is Christianity. It's not about me going to church. It's not about me being a family. It's not about me submitting under leadership. It has nothing to do with this. It's all about me, me and God, just me and him. What do you have? You have fatherlessness. You have a whole nother thing altogether. 
What's that called? That's called overcorrection. I was driving down the road on the 101 coming, coming home a few years ago. I had an SUV at the time, and I was driving home and just kind of, you know, like you do when you drive, just thinking of other things. Thinking, and all of a sudden I hear this, pop, you know, my front tire just blows. And I have a moment of panic. I slam on the brakes and try to get off the road as fast as possible. Now, if any of you all drive, hopefully you know that's not how you handle a blowout, right? If your tire blows, you're not supposed to slam on the brakes and turn the wheel. Because what happened was, when I slammed on the brake and turned the wheels, I went from a blowout to a spin out on the freeway and hitting other cars and caused a massive kind of collision on the freeway. What could have been corrected by just taking my foot off the gas and slowly going over to the side and dealing with the blowout became a complete overcorrection and going the opposite direction and causing more problems than could have been. And this is what happens when we see a problem in the home or in the world with men doing sinful and abusive things or spiritual leaders doing sinful and abusive things. Instead of trying to bring something back into order, we overcorrect and cause more problems. We overcorrect and fight for power. We overcorrect and try to restructure the way God ordered the church. We overcorrect and try to bring things into what we think is feasibly how it should be. And then more problems are caused. And we are in a state in which nobody wants to take responsibility. And as much as I hate what pastors have done to the church. And as much as I believe that the weight of responsibility needs to fall on them, many, because of having no understanding of what the order of God is, have overcorrected and abandoned God's order so that they would never get hurt again. Look at verse 5. Paul says, this is why I left you here. Remember, here's a father speaking to his son. This is why I left you here, that you might put what remained into order. Paul says to his son, listen, I've called you to do something, and why I left you there was to take what was out of order and put it into order. This word and this understanding is that in order for him to do the work that he was called to do is that his father had sent him, his spiritual father had sent him to set things in order at his own sacrifice. Not to overcorrect, but to set in order. If he was to set things in order, don't you think it would be important for him to know what order is? 
This kind of order that Paul continues to talk about throughout his writings is an order that's rooted in Genesis chapter 1 where God sets things in order when he created the world. He had a perfect order under his lordship and under his rule and reign. And that order did not degrade or devalue anybody under it. Matter of fact, it gave everyone under his rule and reign exact purpose and power and, and security. It gave them all that they needed to fulfill the role in which God had intended for them under his rule and reign. And that order is rooted in creation. That order is in the garden. And that order starts with God being in the place that he can only see as king. The one who sets order. The one who is in control. You can only set this kind of order when your heart is rooted in what his greeting was. Remember this? You're, not, you're a servant. You're not in control. God's in control. He's made promises. He's the one who set everything in order. He's going to accomplish what he said. And we're in this together. Your heart has to be rooted in this. It's not about you setting things away. It's about you being submitted, surrendered as a servant. God has to be in that position of authority for us to submit what he calls order. And that order flows as he intended. Where does he start? Just like he did in the garden. He said, I'm, I want you to appoint elders in every town as I directed you. This is important because I think this should be noted. He sent his son Titus to appoint elders based upon a certain level of reputation. And we're going to go over that. But it wasn't based upon some guy who wanted to be popular pursuing the pursuit of being an elder. It was a man who was so convinced that his reputation mattered that they could see his reputation. And it was Titus going to him saying, look, you've got the reputation and I'm calling you into this position. There's so many people out there who are pursuing to be popular who want and they don't care about their reputation. They care about the position. Beware of somebody who's pursuing ministry like it's a popularity contest rather than someone who's more concerned about their character. What does he say? Appoint these kinds of people. And here's what's going to mess with us. The kinds of people, the kinds of men that Paul his, tells Titus to appoint are going to be totally different in so many ways than the kinds of men we see in positions of leadership today. Here's what he says. Look for someone who's above reproach. Uh, this word blameless or above reproach is uh, an important word because you're going to see it 
a few times in this section of scripture. He uses this word blameless or above reproach over and over again. And here's why a lot of men kind of shrink away from being fathers in their homes and being leaders in their church and community. Here's the reason why. Because they hear and they've been told that what it means to be blameless is that they need to be perfect. And this has nothing to do with what he is saying. He is not calling, go find perfect men. Now, I could sit up here all day and tell you all I'm not perfect. But there are some of, of you who love the reality of like, man, there is one perfect guy in the world. I just Let's just, you know, and I could tell you all. But then those who are closer to me are going, yeah, I could see he, he's not perfect talk to my wife and kids their kinds of explanations of me would not be he's perfect and that he's never sinned perfection is not the requirement of being an elder he says in so many places of Paul's writing he talks about how we've been saved by grace that we've all sinned that none of us have reached this level of perfection that only through Christ's perfection and through him so this has nothing to do with us finding perfect men the word above reproach has more to do with someone's reputation than it does their behaviors reputation above reproach is this idea of someone being blameless it doesn't mean that they're perfect. It just means that they have a good reputation and that they are against accusation. And so here's, here's this kind of thing is where there is someone who has lived amongst the community and these people know them and, and these people are saying, and that when people think about these men, when they think about these, these are guys who serve and love and do these kinds of, these are men who go, yeah, you know what? Those guys, they're godly. This reputation is important because we have to know this does not mean perfection. But if we're going to talk about being blameless, where does he start? He starts in verse 6 by saying they need to be blameless in their home. Blameless in their home. This is where he starts, which I think is so important because if we're going to talk about what we need in the church, we need fathers who, who apply what they do in their home to leading the church. We need fathers who, who apply what they do in their homes to leading the church because if you're going to manage the house of God, then you have to be able to manage and lead in your home. And this is this idea of being blameless. And he starts with this. This man should be a one-woman man, a man who's a husband of one wife. Now, just so you know, this is not Paul speaking to a person who may have been a man who's never been divorced or a man who's single. This is him saying, look, it, you want to find a man whose heart is for his wife, that she is his definition of beauty, that she is the one in which he is pursuing, dying for, loving, giving himself to. He is a one-woman man, that this man flirts, but he only flirts with her. 
That this man is not flirting with every person that walks in. This man is, is not consumed with trying to find the next best thing. That this man has defined and given himself to this covenant and that that is his woman. And when everybody knows that, he's going to live for, die for her. He's going to sacrifice. He's going to serve her. He's going to flirt with her, date her, love her. And not only does this man have the reputation of having eyes for this woman, this man loves his kids, leads his kids. And the words here may seem like these kids are little angels, but I hope that you would do some deeper study because the power of this is not a man who has perfect little angels, but a man who loves and makes the statement, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. That doesn't mean that each kid is perfect and does all these things right. Because I'm going to tell you all this. I was raised in kind of a context where people would tell me, you know, that you're the pastor's son. You should act different. And I just to make it real clear. You all don't ruin my kids, okay? I'm so thankful that I get to be in a community where my kids can be my children in this family who we love and we let them be kids and not little pastors, right? Who get to enjoy living in community, working through their issues, being pastored through them, being called to repentance, caring for one another. This kind of family is one who's not perfect but has a reputation of this man loves his wife. He loves his kids and leads them. Second thing we see in verse 7 is that he... He... Uh, He's blameless in his character. I hope you'll look at this with me because I think this is important for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. There's that word blameless again. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. I mean, my goodness, this list is so clear and this is not a like exhaustive list like these are the only things but these are some very important things and I want us to notice them. As an overseer, we must not be arrogant which seems to be a qualification for pastors these days should not be quick-tempered you shouldn't think that every time i'm going to go to find out i got to sell him out he's gonna he's gonna i don't know if he's gonna blow up on me not a drunkard not uh not violent here's another one pretty clear not greedy he's not in it for the money he's not going after you know the gain he's not fleecing the sheep he's out there to serve and to love this is this is the qualifications of one that should be appointed as elder then he lists good things things that he should be doing not just things he shouldn't be doing he should be hospitable a lover of good self-controlled upright holy and undisciplined these are interesting because it speaks of leading and hospitality loving what is good being self-controlled and disciplined this is a man who opens up his home rather than preaches and retreats and doesn't ever let anybody in his home this is a man who loves what is good who has a sense of self-control, who's upright. 
These characteristics are so important, but as I read them, the tension begins to come because so many of us could care less. What is that man doing with his kids at home? Could care less about how he's living and his character and whether I've even been in his home. We're so consumed with talent and popularity that we so quickly overlook the very things that qualify someone. What else? He's blameless in his doctrine. Verse 9. He holds firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. He is so consumed with the gospel. He is so consumed with the reality of what Christ has done and the grace that has been poured out upon him that he uses the gospel to do two things, to encourage and to correct. This is, I will say, the most difficult thing about being a pastor. This is the most difficult thing I would say about being a father. So many people want to critique and criticize and tell you how you should do it, but not many people are willing to step into the place where they must Walk in this place of tension that this gospel word, this doctrine weighs so heavy on us that not only am I meant to encourage, that, that a man who's only encouraging people and never corrects is not qualified for the position. And a man who's constantly weighing down and correcting and never encourages is not qualified. But that the gospel has been given and this doctrine has been given in a way that, the, that we should be encouraged by what Christ has done. And that we should be confronted in our sin. It should correct us. That he's so committed to the word of God. That he wants to do what is right and what is best for the community. Encourage and correct. Why is it important for us to hear this? Because there's some of us in here who, who, would, who would go to this way. Well, you know, I'll wait till Titus 2. You know, I'm a woman. There's a section in there speaking to women. I'll wait there. I don't need to hear this. This ain't for me. I can check out. But it should speak to The very beauty of the gospel and the reality of the types of leaders that we should see, celebrate, thank God for. Should commit us to approaching that order. To not say, no, I'll take all the power in my hands. We'll do it. No, to, to pray that God would bring this kind of right order. Or maybe there's some men in this room who go, well, I'm not an, an elder. So, you know, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not an elder. But I'm going to tell you this. If you, if you heard that, you, you kind of missed the point. It's not about pursuing a title of elder. But how's your reputation? What are you known for? 
Has the gospel done such a work in your life that when people see you and, and hear of you and, and, and hear of your commitment to Christ, do they see someone who is committed to loving and leading and caring for their family, who, who cares about their character, who's not consumed with all the idols of this world, but is discipline, who's hospitable, who's opening up the light. What about the character of your life? This doesn't sound like just somebody who's pursuing a title should do these things. This sounds like somebody who is committed to the gospel, to love and lead their family. It also should call all of us, no matter what our titles are, to realize we should pray. Not only for spiritual fathers, but we should pray for fathers. Men who follow this model that Christ himself fulfilled. Notice this, the good and loving Father, the good and loving Father sent His what? His beloved Son to do what? To sacrifice Himself to set all things back into order. To give of Himself to come and make all things be back into order. And the promise is that our Father who has fulfilled that in Christ is patiently waiting for the day when He will come again and all things will be made right. And all things will be put back in order. And all things will be under His rule and reign and Lordship. That should bear so heavy upon us as men in this room that we should feel that same burden that the Father has loved us and surrounded us with others to encourage us and that we should, at our own cost, die to self. Thank you, Anthony, for reading that today. Dying to self so that we could see things be put back into the order in which God has intended them to be. I'm going to ask the elders to come at this time. And I'm going to ask us to do a couple of things. One would be this. I hope that the, a text like this would, would make you more serious about praying for us. More serious about praying for us. And I, I want to say this in thanks to these guys. Not only are these men become some of my closest friends, but they have proven to me and to this community the reputation of an elder. Humble, loving their families, one woman men love their kids committed they serve hours without pay to give of themselves to serve this community to lead and to see things be put into order not only have they done that in their homes they've done that in this church and i hope that not only would you pray for us 
but that you would join us in praying as we do every time. Lord, help more men to rise up. We need more. We need more laborers who are not just passive, who will sit back on the sidelines and just let, oh, you guys can do it. Let the women do it. We'll just, we'll just sit back and play video games or whatever. Let's, we need more men. We need more men who take seriously the gospel, who take seriously their reputation. Join us in praying. And if you're saying, well, I want to be an elder, it makes it really clear. Stop pursuing it and start building character and reputation and start doing the things that an elder should do. And that way, when your reputation is in place, you'll start seeing, hey, you should think about being an elder. This is not a pursuit. This is a recognition of somebody who's already walking with that reputation. Yes, we need this. Yes, our families need this. Yes, our community needs this. So I will ask that you join us in that prayer. And I've asked Anthony who read that that poem earlier wrote that to come and pray for us and I would hope that as he prays for us and for you that you would join him specifically as as men and as women to pray for the order of God that we would not overreact but that we would pray for the order of God to come into this house and so all of us have reason to pray so, Anthony, if you'd pray.
prepare for communion this morning. I pray that we remember that we are not modeling our lives or praying to one of the elders or leaders or higher-ups, but we are keeping our eyes fixed upon this Son who was sent by His Father to give of Himself, to set things in order at His own cost. That every time we drink of this cup, we are viewing the only man who is a completely above reproach and perfect. We are viewing the only one who could pay the price fully for our sins and that every man and woman in this room is admitting their complete and utter need of Him, of His power, of His Spirit, of His help. That even that we have a desire and a longing to walk in these things is evidence that His Spirit is working. As you come to this table, let's celebrate Him. Let's remember His work for us. Let's once again commit to the covenant we have with Him. As families, let's pray for the order of God to come into our home, into our, our church, into our neighborhood. Let's pray for the order of God to come as single mothers in this room that you would see that you are not abandoned, that you have a Father who is far greater and better than anyone and that you've been surrounded by a family. That those children who have been abandoned and broken and, and are fatherless, that they would see that He is a Father to the fatherless. That they would find all their hope and joy resting in the very work that Christ has accomplished. We all come to this table hungry. We all come to this table thirsty. We all come to this table in need of Him. The tables are open. Let's sing and rejoice in His work for us. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.